Thank you, Jim. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Glad that you came out to worship with us. Uh, we've been in a series now for eight weeks. Can you believe that? Since the start of the year, uh, this is week eight on the spiritual gifts. We started at the beginning of the series talking about um, how Jesus defined real leadership, how Jesus defined greatness as the one who is willing to serve. He said, I didn't come to be served, but rather to serve. And so then we began identifying some of the spiritual gifts. We talked in the first week about the gift of apostleship, that is the gift of missionary service, tied that in there. We talked about the gift of service. We talked about the gifts of leadership, uh, mercy, wisdom. Um, today we're going to talk about the gifts of knowledge and faith. Yeah, that was the other one. Um, and uh, we learned that the, the reason why we're going through these, what I hope to accomplish here, our goal it's first to, um, to define what each of these gifts are biblically. What does the Bible say the gifts are to learn what they are? And then to try and figure out as we're listening to this, well, is, are one of these gifts the gift that God has given me? Because we learned as part of this series that God gives each believer a spiritual gift. Some of us have more than one of them, but we all have at least one of these spiritual gifts. That is a supernatural ability that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit to accomplish uh, ministry for Jesus Christ. And so um, we've learned what these gifts are. So as you're hearing these, I'm hoping over the, over the past weeks, you've been identifying maybe what some of your gifts are. We've still got a couple more weeks to go. Maybe one of the gifts that we talk about today is a gift that you have, that God's given you. And then we want to, uh, hopefully our goal is to motivate you to, once you've figured out what your spiritual gift is, to begin using that for the glory of God here at Hebron Christian Church and in our community. Um, our scripture today comes from, again, as I said, we're going to be uh, learning about the gifts of knowledge and faith today. Our scripture is just one verse, so you're not going to be standing very long. So if you would stand to your feet, it comes from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, the great faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. And we'll see why this is such a vital verse in the scripture by the time we get done with our sermon today. So let's just read together this one verse, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, and it reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, all right, so let's uh, first talk about the gift of knowledge. I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, part of this list of gifts is given us in Romans chapter 12, and then another list that Paul gives, some of the same gifts as Romans chapter 12, some different. Um, is from, and so Romans chapter 12 is where we get these two gifts from. We've covered all the ones in Romans 12. Now we're in 1 Corinthians 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 8 says, For to one is given through the Holy Spirit the utterance of wisdom, which we talked about last week, and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So what is this gift of knowledge um, that, that is spoken of here in the Scripture? Well, we know what it isn't. It is not the gift of wisdom. Paul identifies them as two distinct things. The gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, two distinct things. There's two different Greek words that are used there. They mean different things. And so Paul is saying, you know, don't be confused between gifts of wisdom and knowledge. We shouldn't be. The gift of wisdom we learned last week is the supernatural God-given ability to discern truth and then to apply that truth practically in real-life situations. Um, this person is somebody who can walk into a boardroom where there's a lot of different ideas that are bouncing back and forth, and the person with the gift of wisdom can open their mouth very calmly toward the end of all those ideas being bounced back and forth and say, hey, here's the problem, and here's the solution to that problem. And everybody in the room goes, well, that was so simple. Why didn't you say something you know, 20 minutes ago, right? But the person with the gift of wisdom has that discernment. They can put their finger on the heart of the matter. They can identify what the real issue is, and then they can speak God's solution into that um, situation. And so again, that's a supernatural ability that the Holy Spirit gives us, that gift of wisdom. So that's not what the gift of knowledge is. Um, 
And you say, well, what is the gift of knowledge then? Well, it's a little bit tough to define because there's nowhere in the New Testament where the gift of knowledge is presented to us and then the biblical author says, there's the gift of knowledge. So we don't really know from the Bible what exactly the gift of knowledge is. Perhaps there's examples of people using their gifts of knowledge all through the scriptures, but nobody ever says, look, there it is, and puts their finger on it. Now, if you were to ask our charismatic friends what the gift of knowledge is, this is what they would say. Uh, They would say that it's something like a prophetic sort of gift, that it is when a Christian hears something from God and some or, or about some other Christian or about some other situation and then going and announcing what they heard from God or that, about that situation or about that person to their local congregation, to their local church. So we got a definition here for you. This is kind of from a charismatic point of view how they would define the gift of knowledge. It could be instructions about that person's health that they're speaking about. They could be saying, hey, look, this is what you need to go do to have that whatever medical situation you got going on remedied. They could go and say you need to go see a certain doctor. Uh, it could be a diagnosis of the problem that they're experiencing. And so they would, charismatic people would say, look, that's the gift of knowledge, being able to hear from God that this is what the health issue is this, that this person's dealing with. It could be information about their per- that person's family problems about their business, about their job, about their spiritual life, and then standing up in front of the church and saying, I have a word, of, a word from God for such and such individual. And so in some charismatic circles, that's what you run into. Um, and then they would deliver what God had told them about that person or about that particular situation that's going on in local church. Um, and they would say what they think God told them about your business, about your family, about your job, about your spiritual life, about your marriage. And in some situations, we've even had people say, hey, look, I think it's time for you to have another child. So it can get a little bit nutty uh, at some, in, some, in some circles. Um, now, is that the gift of knowledge? Well, there are some people who think that that's what the gift of knowledge is, that it's a Holy Spirit-given ability, a supernatural ability, to be able to have some special knowledge, some special word from God to speak to a certain individual or into a certain situation um, and tell them what, what's going on there. Let me give you another possible definition. Another definition could be that the gift of knowledge is a supernatural ability to have deep insight into the truths of the Word of God. To have a supernatural ability to see deeply into Scripture, to be able to identify what's going on behind the scenes in Scripture. That is, it is a God-given ability to search the Scriptures and to pluck out spiritual truths, to pluck out spiritual principles, biblical principles, um, that the rest of us tend to miss out on. You know, we maybe have read through a particular passage of Scripture our whole life, and then somebody comes along with the gift of knowledge and says, hey, this is what's going on in this verse. And we say, I've read that my whole life, and I've never seen that before. Um, Paul had this gift. You remember Peter wrote of him, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16. Peter said about Paul, he said, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, that are difficult for us to process. Um, but Peter tells his readers, but please don't neglect Paul's writings. He calls Peter, call, Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. He identifies them as such. In other words, Peter acknowledges that there were some insights that the Apostle Paul could see deeply into Scripture, some things theologically that he was bringing to the forefront that the rest of the apostles were kind of behind, behind Paul, right? They were behind the times. They, did, they weren't following along with what Paul was saying. Paul was bringing so much stuff to light, so much theological insight to light, that the rest of the apostles were struggling to just keep up with the Apostle Paul. Peter says, look, it's because he had a special gift that God had given him. Friends, perhaps the gift of knowledge in the early church was a supernatural, God-given ability to connect the dots of Scripture back to Jesus Christ. For example, also Apollos in the book of Acts perhaps had this gift. He's described Acts chapter 18 and verse 24 as an eloquent man who was competent with or in the Scriptures. Verse 25 says, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord 
and being fervent in spirit, Apollos spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So perhaps that's Paulus with this gift of, of knowledge to be able to use that and share it with the church. You might even say that this gift works in tandem with the gift of teaching. That is, with the gift of knowledge, somebody's able to see deeply into the truths of Scripture, um, and then they're able to take their gift of teaching and then go out and communicate that knowledge, communicate those insights from God's Word to, uh, to the church. You say, well, Gordon, it sounds like you've got your definition then. Worked hard on that, right? Sounds like you know what it is then, what the gift of knowledge is, even though the Scripture doesn't particularly say that was the gift of knowledge. Sounds like you figured out what the gift of knowledge is. Well, again, like I said earlier, we cannot say definitively what exactly this gift is. Is it some sort of a prophetic gift where somebody gets a special information from, from the Lord and he says about a particular individual or a particular situation in the church, is somebody supposed to stand up in church and say, this thus saith the Lord? Or is it some sort of a being able to see behind the page of the Scripture and see what's going on and dig out those deep things of Scripture? Again, we cannot say with absolute certainty what exactly this gift is. You say, well, Gordon, that raises a really good question then. What difference does any of this make to me then, right? I mean, if you can't even define what it is, what difference does this make to my life? Well, the answer is it doesn't. It doesn't make any difference to your life. Let me show you why. Skip forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, just a couple of verses after Paul lists off in 1 Corinthians 12 all of these spiritual gifts. You ready for this? Here we go. Y'all hang on there. We're going to get a little teaching here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul has just finished talking about unity in the body of Christ. He's finished talking about the different gifts that the people in the body of Christ have. And then he provides us with this list of spiritual gifts. And then on the heels of talking about those spiritual gifts, Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. He says, love never ends. You can absolutely count on that. Love never ends. It'll never go away. Paul says, but here's what's going to go away. He says, as for prophecies, they'll pass away. He says, as for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, one of the spiritual gifts, what's going to happen to it? It'll pass away. It'll go away. It'll cease now, the question is, when are these gifts going to pass away? When is the gifts of prophecy? Because he's specific here. He doesn't list off all the gifts that are going to pass away. He says some specific ones, prophecy, tongues, knowledge. And he says these things are going to cease. These things are going to stop being around. They're going to stop being active and used by the local church. Well, he tells us the answer to when this is going to happen. He says in verse 10, again, in the context, all this in the context of talking about spiritual gifts. Everybody with me? Okay. I know I'm rolling through some stuff here, but he says in verse 10 when this is going to happen. He says it's going to happen when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. You say, Gordon, what is the perfect or who is the perfect? Well, in reading a whole lot of commentaries and reading what a lot of different people had to think about who they or what they think the perfect was, almost 100% unanimous agreement amongst theologians, even people that I don't quote them for other things, or don't, have, don't, don't agree with them on other things, even those folks agreed that the perfect is not talking about a what, but that it's talking about a who, and that the perfect is the Lord Jesus. And so it says, in the, so when we're looking at this verse in verse 10, uh, scholars, no matter how, what do they think about this verse, they all think that the perfect is referring to when Jesus comes. You say, well, Gordon, that hasn't happened yet. Well, hold on there, Kemosabe. If you were here last year, January, February, when I taught on the book of Revelation, you will know that we taught about how, um, how there was this cataclysmic event that took place in 70 AD. I have a picture for it here. This is an artist's rendering of it. 
This is the destruction of Jerusalem or an artist's rendering of the destruction of Jerusalem. You can see Titus out there on the precipice of the cliff. He's got all of his Roman legions with him. He's looking down over the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is in flames. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is under siege. This all happened in 70 AD. The Romans came. The, the Jews had tried to revolt against them. The Romans came to put down the revolt, and they completely destroyed and decimated uh, Jerusalem. And they decimated the temple. They destroyed everything. Uh, just millions of Jews died. Blood running through the streets. Um, and as we read through the book of Revelation and studied the book of Revelation, we read about this judgment that was coming upon God's people. We read about how in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, how, the, how Christ was going to come on the clouds, God was going to come on the clouds. And those clouds are not warm, white, puffy clouds. They're not Charmin commercial clouds, right? They are clouds of destruction. They are clouds, they're thunder clouds. There are lightning bolts coming out of those clouds. Um, and so anytime we read in the Old Testament about God coming on the clouds, it's always about him coming in destruction. And so we read about in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 that God is going to come in destruction, and his destruction is focused at those who pierced him. This is all in Revelation chapter 1. And those who pierced him would be the Jewish people. It wasn't the Romans that did it. It was the Jewish people who put the Romans up to it. And so Christ is coming in his revenge. Christ is coming to destroy. Christ is coming to repay the Jewish people for re rejecting him, the Jewish people for crucifying him. And so in that sense, his coming judgment is what came, not the second coming that we would think about. We still expect the second coming to come at the end of time, right? But the coming judgment of God came upon the Israelite people. So that is one possible explanation of when, following the circle back, the perfect comes. I don't know if you followed that or not. Anyway, go back and listen to the series on Revelation. I don't know that you'll be any better place by the time you get done with it. But in any case, you can go back and check that out. But anyhow, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was written before 70 AD, before the destruction of Jerusalem. We know that. And my opinion is that when Jesus brought the smackdown on Israel, those gifts, the ones that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, ceased. In fact, we see this happen in the book of Acts. Uh, as the church was forming in the very early years, you see the gifts of healing. You see healers going out and like literally raising people back to life and people being all kinds of things being healed. You see the gift of tongues being celebrated in the church and practiced widely. You see the gift of prophecy being practiced widely in the church. But then as you read through the book of Acts and as the church continues to age and it gets closer and closer to 70 AD, you don't read about those instances in the book of Acts. They begin to fade out. They begin to pass away, just as Paul had said would happen. Now, if you disagree with me on that, there's ambiguity in the Scripture, right? Ambiguity that God the Father himself, Jesus Christ, who wrote the words of Scripture, was okay with, right? He didn't, he didn't define the gift of knowledge for us and say this is what it is through the Scriptures. So if he was okay with that ambiguity, then I'm going to be I'm going to have to be okay with that gift, of, with that ambiguity. But again, if you disagree with that, again, your salvation is not in jeopardy. The Bible is so wide open on the issue about all of that. But what I, what I would ask if you permit me to offer up a little bit of words of caution here around this gift and about how it's been taught, how it's been received and understood by the church. And I'll close out my thoughts on the gift of knowledge with this. When I was in college, I went to a charismatic church service. There's about a thousand young people and adults there. 
a lot of young people, a lot of college-age students, and we were all packed into the sanctuary together, and there were people celebrating many of what would, people would refer to as the charismatic gifts. They were speaking in tongues, people were prophesying, they were standing up in church with a word of knowledge, um, they were running around the sanctuary, um, they were being slain in the Spirit, there was all sorts of things happening, and I was sitting there observing all of this, and the gift of knowledge, as the charismatic church would describe it or define it, was being used. Um, for example, some of the young people that were coming forward for prayer, some other people in the church who had the gift of knowledge said, I have a word of knowledge for you that God has called you to the mission field. And then another person would come by and they would say, in the next year, God has told me that you're to get married. I mean, there was all sorts of things like that being spoken about the people who were coming forward, about people who were asking for prayer. The gift of knowledge was being used. Now, here's my word of caution. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you, key word, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, the Bible just told us that I don't need somebody with the word of knowledge to tell me what the will of God is for my life. The word of God said that you may discern what the will of God is, what's acceptable, what's perfect, what's good. That I can understand it, that I can comprehend it, and that I can figure out apart from someone with the gift of knowledge what God's will is. The Bible said so that you may discern. And I particularly don't need someone announcing to the local church, in front of the church, what they think God's will is for my life or that I need to have another child, right? For, uh, <laughs> friends, this happens in churches today, though. And this is life control. This is neurosis. There are pastors across our country in certain circles who want to dominate their church congregation, their, their church congregation. They want to control people. And they hide behind this definition of the gift of knowledge, and they use it to dominate other people's lives. Friends, that is sickness. That is controlling people. That is not spiritual, and that is not from God. And if you disagree with me on the meaning of when the perfect comes, okay, but at least take into account those words of caution. Fair enough? Fair enough? Okay. All right, second gift that we want to talk about today, our second and only other gift of the day, is the gift of faith. The gift of faith. I have a slide for you here that does give a definition of what we're talking about, because the scriptures are very clear. Uh, the gift of faith is a supernatural ability to trust God for things that look humanly impossible. It is, uh, this is mountain-moving faith. This is uh, obstacle-demolishing faith. This is the kind of faith that has Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 as its life verse, which says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. These are the kind of people that have this gift. They walk around thinking about that verse. They're living that verse out, Ephesians 3 and 20. To these people, God gives not only ability to have faith, but he gives them the ability to see God in a more realistic way, in terms of his infinite resources, in terms of his infinite power. Again, they think about that. Some, many of us in our lack of faith would say, you know, you got to be more realistic about things. But these are people who say, no, you've got it all wrong. You're not thinking about this God whom you serve, who has the resources of heaven at his disposal, that he can bring to bear in your situation. 
And so this person with the gift of faith sees that, recognizes the God that they serve, and says, you know what? Nothing's impossible for him. The Bible is full of men and women like this. Deborah, for example, in the Old Testament was one of them. She announced to the great general of Israel, Barak, that God was going to give the armies of Sisera into his hand, and Barak said to Deborah, that's fine. I, I, I would love for that to happen, but I'm not going to go out there in the battlefield unless you go with me because I see that you're a person of great faith. See, Barak didn't have enough faith to sink his teeth in the promise that God had given him through Deborah and go out and take it for his own. Instead, he said, Deborah, you've got to go with me. So Deborah said to him, Judges 4 and verse 9, All right, I will surely go with you. However, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, to your fame, for the Lord will sell Sisera into my hand, the hand of a woman. In other words, because you won't latch on to the promises of God, because you won't take them for yourself, because you have a lack of faith, God's going to grant me the credit. And then there was the faith of Esther, who said, I'll go in and I'll see the king. Um, She said, Esther chapter 4 and verse 16, I'll go in, and though it is against the law, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. I believe that God's going to deliver me. I'll go in there. Esther walked in by faith to see the king. How about Noah? Built this big giant boat, right? Hadn't seen rain. Nobody had even seen a cloud in the sky. Um, and Noah, for 100 years, is out there building this boat. Never saw a drop of rain. Isn't that amazing? Never saw a drop of rain in 100 years while he's out there building this boat in the middle of a dry patch. And everybody's going, why would you want to be building a boat? He's like, well, because this water's going to fall from the sky. And they're all going, I hadn't seen that before, right? Well, Noah's out there doing it. People are ridiculing him, making fun of him. I mean, a lesser man would have given up, but Noah had heard from God and he had faith. So he kept going. How about Abraham? Abraham left his home, left his family, left everything behind that he'd ever known, all the security of everything that he had from his homeland to go to some place where he didn't even know where he was going. He didn't even have a map, and God said, this is where we're heading. God just said, head out, and I'll let you know when you got in there. Abraham had the faith to latch hold of the promise that God had given him, and so he left everything behind. And then there was Moses. Right? He's backed up against the Red Sea. He's got all the Israelites with him. He's got the armies of Pharaoh on the other side and all their horses and their chariots and their arms, and they're going to come and slaughter the Israelite people. And everything's in turmoil. There's a big commotion. And Moses had the gift of faith to stand up and say, God didn't lead us out of Israel, out of Canaan, or out of, um, out of Egypt to perish here by the Red Sea. If God said that we're going to go to Canaan, then we're going to go to Canaan. That's just the end of it. And so he stood up on that rock and he said, Exodus 14 and verse 13, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Took that rod in his hand and he held it up and the seas parted. Friends, the seas didn't part because Moses held a rod in his hand. The seas parted because God recognized the faith of Moses. You know, down through church history, there have been a lot of people like this. People like Martin Luther, people like John Calvin, people like John Wesley, people like Dwight L. Moody, Corey Tenboom, Fanny Crosby, Hudson Taylor, and E. Stanley Jones. I was thinking as I was reading and preparing through the sermon about some of the great giants like that of the, of the faith, and one guy came to my mind, and his name is George Mueller. You may not be familiar with a fellow by the name of George Mueller, but let me share a little bit about his life. He was a... Um, he was a, uh, a was a missionary. He was a man who ran orphanages in Bristol, England back in the 1800s. Got a picture of him here for you. Um, he began his first orphanage with just two shillings in his bank account. 
over his 60 years of ministry, uh, caring for the orphans in Bristol, England, and around that area, he cared for over 10,000, think about that, 10,000 orphans out of the five different homes that um, he built. Um, He would feed them three meals a day, and he recorded that never once in 60 years of ministry to the orphans did any of the kids ever go without a meal. 2,000 orphans he would keep at a time. So 2,000 orphans every day, three meals a day, no one ever missed a meal, ever, in 60 years of his ministry. He never made his needs known. He never wrote an article in the paper to tell people about his ministry. Hey, I'd like for you to give to our ministry. Um, he never you know, sent out bulletins or, or advertised about it. The only thing that he did to make sure that he had his provisions for his kids was that he got on his knees every day and he prayed. And he asked God to provide for the needs of the orphanages for 60 years. One morning, he came down to breakfast with his orphans, hundreds of them, and there wasn't a single speck of food. All the, cu- the cupboards were empty. There was no milk. Um, the place was completely bare. And they were all waiting to see what... Mul- uh, I started to say Muller. <laughs> okay, it's been a year, so anyway. They were all waiting to see what... He had a lot of faith, didn't he? They were all waiting to see what Mu- Mueller... Hmm, I even wrote it down wrong. All right, they were waiting to see what Mueller was going to do. Mueller, being the man of faith that he was, sat down at the table and bowed his head, and the orphans all bowed their head too. And he prayed out loud saying, Father, we thank you for the food that we are going to eat this morning. And then he just sat there with his head bowed at the table, all the kids looking at him. A few minutes later, there was a knock at the door. It was a baker from town. He said, strangely, he had woken up that morning at 2 a.m., couldn't go back to sleep, and he figured, well, while I'm awake, I might as well go down and bake some bread and take it out to the orphanage. A few moments later, another knock at the door, and it was the milkman, and the, mil- the milkman's cart had broken down out in front of the orphanage. <laughs> go figure, right? A wheel was busted, and there was all this weight from the milk on it, and the milkman said, Look, I got all this weight from the milk on my cart. And he said, I, I can't get the cart back to the shop to fix the wheel until I get the milk off it. And he said, if I, if I just leave the milk sitting here, it's going to spoil. I got a bunch of milk. Can you use the milk? And Mueller, 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 Mueller said, there's a lot of people who had a lot of faith around that whole deal, right? Mueller said, I think we can use it. Bring it in. And they had breakfast that morning right on schedule. This happened, friends, hundreds of times. Mueller writes in his, in his journals about all the times that he prayed, and every time he prayed and asked God for something, asked God to provide, he would always catalog it in his journal. He kept a diary of all the prayers that he prayed by faith, and every time he stepped out, he wrote it down. And, he, and his diary covers over 3,000 pages. There's almost a million words in his diary. And his diary chronicles over 50,000 answers to prayer. The man of faith. Prayers that he prayed by faith. Prayers that God answered. He had a gift that God had given him. You say, Gordon, that's great, but I'm not George Mueller. I can't pray for food to come to my breakfast table, right? I, 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 I don't know what that's all about. That's wonderful about George Mueller, but what about me? What difference does this make to me? Well, I'm telling you about this this morning because many of you, sitting here this morning, 
have the gift of faith. Maybe you just don't even realize that you have the gift. But as I'm sharing about Mueller's life and I'm sharing these stories about his life, if something in your heart skips and jumps and there's some excitement in your spirit to say, you know what, I've prayed some prayers like that before and I've seen God work and I believe that God can work like that. I believe in the infinite power of our God that he has infinite resources in heaven to bring to bear my situation. Friend, perhaps, perhaps you have that gift, a Holy Spirit-given gift, to know that God can do things that are humanly impossible. And so, friends, I'm sharing with you this morning about this, about Mueller, because I'm hoping that Mueller will stir you to begin praying like that for our church and to begin praying like that for lost people in our community and in your family and in, amongst our friends. Friend, if you don't have this gift of faith, Mueller and Abraham and Noah and Deborah and all these great men and women of God are still a challenge to us to expand our view of God, to expand our understanding of who God is, and to get an increased confidence in God's ability to act in supernatural ways in our lives. There are some single parents here this morning, and we know what God says in his word about his care for the fa- as a father to the fatherless, and how God says, I'm going to do that for you. And there's some single parents here this morning who need to be challenged to really believe God's promise to you, that God really will stand in the gap for you. There are some of us here who are employees, and we're not doing what's expedient and what's expected of us in our workplace, because some of the things that we're being asked to do are, frankly, dishonoring to God. They're unethical. And so we're not doing them and we're not getting advanced. Well, we need to sink our teeth into God's promise. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30 that says, For those who honor me, I will honor. And we know God's promise, friends, that he raises up and promotes those people who honor him and who are willing to do things his way. And we need to hear about men like Mueller and others who knew what it meant to latch on to those promises, to sink our teeth into them and not to give up. Because God is bigger than our boss, and God is bigger than our employer, and when God says the time is right for you to be promoted, when God says the time is right for more to come into your storehouses, God will grant that. God can promote us, friends, anytime he's ready. Some of us this morning have children who are off and away from us. They're off at universities, they're off at school, they're serving in the military, they're spending the weekend with an ex-spouse who does not have a godly home, and we're worried about our children in those environments. We're worried about God's ability to keep those children close to him in in those ungodly environments. And we know about those promises, though, that God has made us, that he has spoken to us, that God can protect the Samuels of Scripture and can protect the Samuels of our life in the presence of Eli. That God can do that. Friends, we need to know who this God is that we're praying to and sink our teeth into his promises, and not let go. Hearing about men like Mueller encourages us that God will honor that. The verse we read at the beginning of our service today, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. Friends, where are you hurting this morning? Where do you feel like God has let you down? Where do you feel like God has abandoned perhaps your situation? 
Friends, may God rebuke us this morning for making him so much smaller than he really is, and may God expand our understanding of his limitless power that if God can provide milk and bread for Mueller, that he can accomplish whatever he said he would accomplish in our lives. We just need to find the promises of God that apply to our situation, latch our teeth into that, and not let go. Friends, that is faith. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We know that you have made us so many promises. Promises, Lord, that we know you are good for. Promises that we know, Lord, you will fulfill. Lord, if there is some wavering in our commitment to you, because we keep waiting, we keep waiting. Lord, may we this morning again affirm our commitment, affirm those promises that you've spoken to us, to our situations in life. Holy Spirit, in these quiet moments, remind us of your infinite power of your ability to reach across miles, to protect children, to resolve situations, to bring blessing in your timing when you're ready. Lord, again today, we just bow our knees. We humble our hearts. We are dependent upon you. You are the God who provides. Lord, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood. These symbols that remind us of what you have accomplished for us. When something, Lord, that we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, speak to our hearts today in these quiet moments. Reassure us. Affirm us. Bless us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.